Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter Audiocast. I'm your host, Dr. M. This is volume 14, issue number one, corresponding with the week of December 18, 2023. In this audiocast, we're going to look at a literature review covering a couple articles that have been published recently. We're going to look at water and dehydration, as well as the recipe of the week. Song of the week is Gypsy Caravan by Wolf Mother. Pretty cool new song that I like a lot. Okay. Starting off this new year, or this at least this new volume, is this volume 14, the 14th year of this podcast, uh, audio cast, for the newsletter. We're going to be looking at a couple of articles that are, to me, pretty interesting as far as it comes to the science update of this year. Number one. Time-restricted eating patterns, which we've talked about much in the past, are known to help physiologically and metabolically by initiating a pause in the action of a protein called mammalian target of rapamycin, or mTOR, and in turn, muscle synthesis, as well as having an effect on inducing autophagy. What is autophagy? Autophagy is a critical way that we clear broken or damaged cells following injured disease, autophagy meaning eating of ourselves. How does circadian biology play into this reality? Well, from an article in Cell Metabolism, we see the following. Quote, circadian disruptions impact nearly all people with Alzheimer's disease, emphasizing both their potential role in pathology and the critical need to investigate the therapeutic potential of circadian modulating interventions. Here we see and show that time-restricted feeding without caloric restriction improve key disease components, including behavioral timing, disease pathology, hippocampal transcription, and memory in two transgenic mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. We found that time-restricted feeding had the remarkable capability of simultaneously reducing amyloid deposition, increasing AB42 clearance, improving sleep and memory, and normalizing daily transcription patterns of multiple genes, including those associated with Alzheimer's disease and neuroinflammation. Thus, our study unveils for the first time the pleiotrophic nature of time feeding on Alzheimer's disease, which has far-reaching effects beyond metabolism, ameliorating neurodegeneration, and the misalignment of circadian rhythmicity. Since time-restricted feeding can substantially modify disease trajectory, this intervention has immediate translational potential, addressing the urgent need and demand for accessible approaches to reduce or halt Alzheimer's disease progression. End quote. Again, that's from Cell Metabolism, Dr. Whitaker et al., 2023. So for me, this continues a long list of research papers telling us that eating often and with large volumes, especially at night, is not good, repeat, not good for cellular metabolism, and especially for cellular regeneration. Circadian biology, that which follows the sun and the moon, i.e., we go to bed at night when the moon comes up, and we wake up when the sun comes up. Those are really important ways that our systems are generating action in proteins throughout the body based on the rhythms of the sun and the moon, against circadian biology, is at the root of cellular function as would be expected based on the diurnal rhythms of historical human activity. When we sleep, we are expected to repair and regenerate, which occurs when the sun goes down. Digested, consumed foods is a sunlight-based activity and should remain so in general. Adults should aim to stop eating by 6 p.m. and resume eating around 8 in the morning or 12, between 8 and 12 in the morning, somewhere around noontime, to open pathways that are beneficial for longevity, specifically autophagy. Important stuff here. Number two, allergy to milk, especially as well as peanut and shrimp is associated with incident cardiovascular disease and mortality over time. 
This comes to us from Keat et al., 2003, in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. Why would this be? Inflammation is at the root of cardiovascular disease. What drives inflammation? Many things, but especially food allergies and intolerances. I've been beating this drum for a while now. Unchecked inflammation is the key, not general inflammation. But unchecked inflammation that is excessive and non-reparative is bad news. Knowing whether you have allergies or intolerances to foods is critical to reducing all-cause morbidity risk, including cardiovascular. Elimination diets and healthy lifestyle choices will be the answer. Number three, long COVID may now have some biomarkers, according to preprint article just published. They note proteins of the complement cascade, classical C1S-C1INH complex, or the alternative cascade, BA or IC3B, and the terminal pathway, C5A and TCC, were all biomarkers significantly elevated in patients with long COVID. This comes to us from Bailey, B-A-I-L-L-I-E et al. 2023, in MedRxIV. These markers may be used to concretely diagnose patients with long COVID-like symptoms, which would then help with choosing therapies and treatments. That's the benefit of this. Outside of that, not a whole lot. Number four, a large functional imaging analysis of screen use in children found some interesting results from the study. Quote, in summary, this scoping review has achieved three major conclusions. First, digital experience does have a positive and negative impact on a child's brain, structurally and functionally. Second, digital experience could cause structural and functional changes in children's frontal, parietal, temporal, and occipital lobes, brain conductivity, and brain networks and the most vulnerable area is the prefrontal cortex and its associated executive function. Third, digital experience has positive and negative impacts on children's brains structurally, longitudinally. Quote, end quote, sorry. Wu et al. 2023 in the journal Early Educational and Development. So the study results were significantly slanted in the negative direction by a ratio of greater than two to one. They noted worsening impulse control as well as decreased cognitive and language activity. Verbal intelligence worsened in proportion with screen use, especially at younger ages. None of this is surprising. Screens are passive babysitters. No active human interaction with visual and social cues to learn from in many cases. Verbal communication would be expected to decrease based on this passive watching instead of talking and being. Other screens should be offered sparingly to children of all ages, and especially children who may have attention concerns. Number five. CAR T cells are showing strong promise at halting autoimmune diseases dead in their tract. CAR T, spelled C-A-R-T, stands for chimeric antigen receptors for T cells. They are a set of T cells that are taken from the body and manipulated to allow the T cells to attack specific B cells when they are returned to the body. This reduces the number of B cells making the antibodies causing autoimmune disease. This is some really ingenious medicine. I hope it comes to pass that it is safe and something we can be used in the arsenal of our fight against autoimmune disease. It may bring hope to some large volume of humans that are suffering from autoimmune disease. Ledford et al. in the journal Nature. Number six, the microbiome of the intestine has a profound effect on our desire to eat certain foods. From the small but informative study, 59 obese adults consumed 30 grams of inulin prebiotic food for bacteria daily for two weeks. Then they had blood, stool, and functional MRI testing performed. There was a placebo arm. These specific tests were short-chain fatty acids, hormones, inflammatory markers in the blood with intestinal microbiota, and short-chain fatty acids in the stool. 
The active inulin participants showed decreased brain activation in specific brain regions towards high caloric food stimuli. Fasting blood tests showed no specific shifts. They noted that changes in brain activation correlated with changes in actinobacteria microbial abundance. This comes to us from Midarwar et al., 2023, in the journal Gut. For me, this is super cool. We have long known that the microbiota or the gut bacteria that live within inside us have been speaking to our brains via chemical signals. Now we see specific neurological activation via fMRI or functional MRI correlated to the changes in eating behaviors. We're linking this all together, i.e. we need to start thinking about how important it is that we consume diverse fibers as a great route to healing brain health. Pulling in Chris Palmer's work and many others, this is the new medicine that we need to be pushing into 2024 and on. SSRIs, SNRIs, and all these drugs we're using are not the answer long-term. The answer long-term is diet, exercise, sleep, immune health, and stress reduction. Those are the big ones. Number seven, cancer therapy is definitively modulated in the intestinal microbiota. This review article is worth your time if you have a family member with cancer or undergoing cancer therapy. In the Nature of Use Immunology by Blake et al., we note now that long and short of it is that modulating the gut microbiota will enhance cancer therapy response, reducing disease burden and death risk, and potentially reducing the amount of chemotherapy needed. They find that fecal microbial transplantation can overcome resistance to immune checkpoint blockade in patients with melanoma, improve therapeutic outcomes and treatment naive patients, and reduce therapy-induced immunotoxicities, end quote. Quite incredible stuff there, folks. Lots and lots and lots of amazing bench science coming to us in the clinical sphere. Moving on to section two, let's get into water. Water makes up 70% of the Earth's surface. Most of it is salty. Humans are made up of around between 45 and 78% water at any given time in our lives with higher volumes at younger years. Muscles are 70% water and fat stores are around 10 to 40% water. Water is vital to our survival. We can survive for many weeks without food. However, without water, death will creep up on us in days. We obtain 70 to 80% of our water from fluid intake and the remaining 20 to 30% from our food-based water. There are all kinds of recommendations out there about how much water to drink daily. Is it six to eight cups of pure water a day, four to six? In truth, the answer is to this question is very complex as we are all unique in our day-to-day activities and our physiology as well. After viewing the meaningful scientific literature, here's what I found. According to one good study, a typical sedentary adult needs to take in roughly 2.5 liters of water a day to maintain eutrophication. The best study and most comprehensive analysis for this complex issue states that 1.8 liters of water per 24 hours is ideal for an average adult human. The problem with this is that it's a generalized number. As the authors point out, is that we are all unique, and this is a general rule, but some people may need more and some people may need less. The theory is that in order to maintain this eutrophication status, a person must intake as much water as they release every day actively, and that exercise, illness, ambient heat, and many other variables can cause a person to need more water to stay in balance. Quote, National Academy of Medicine publication, which presented dietary references Intakes for water include a lengthy review of water balance studies and water needs of children and adults. However, this report concluded that A, individual water requirements can vary greatly from day to day 
between people based on differences in physical activity, climates, and dietary contents. And B, there is no single daily water requirement for any given person. End quote. That's from Armstrong et al. in the journal Nutrients. So, what are the known dehydration levels and symptoms? The symptoms of acute dehydration vary from the amount of water loss, but roughly 1-2% of body water loss will impair temperature regulation and encourage thirst. Dry mouth and appetite suppression comes next at 3% water deficit, and then at 5% we'll begin a phase of difficulty concentrating and sleepiness, followed by collapse and eventually death. I can tell you having myself personally taken an incredible bushwhack hike seven miles up and down a 11,000-foot peak in the Wind River Range in Wyoming, and I did not have enough water myself, thinking I did have enough, but I sweat a lot during this hike, that I was coming down the mountain, and it was pretty incredible. I was somewhere between 3 and 5% water defeated, and it was not fun. I could tell you it was a pretty arduous experience. Do not recommend going on a long hike with other folks without enough water. Thank God to one of the other hikers who had one extra liter to share. When we think of these levels of dehydration, we usually think of an infectious disease causing a loss of fluids and a reduced intake, like cholera or noroviral disease that's diarrheal. These diseases are a major cause of death worldwide through water loss. At home, heat stroke in the intense summers during sporting events or children left in cars are another wake-up call for us as Americans. These issues are easily prevented through adequate hydration, safety precautions, and rest. Recent literature suggests that even mild dehydration, a body water loss of this 1-2% to range, can impair cognitive performance. There are many other side effects of mild dehydration chronically, including the disruption of how water acts as a transporter for nutrients, regulation of body temperature, lubrication of joints and internal organs, as well as providing structure to cells and tissues, and can help preserve cardiovascular function. Water consumption may also facilitate weight management. Water deficits can impact physical performance. Not knowing exactly what is the ideal amount, because there is, as of yet, no true one-size-fits-all answer, how do we stay adequately hydrated in any scenario? Clearly, drinking some adequate level of water is almost always the simplest answer. The volume is the variable. In moderate to severely dehydrated individuals, using an oral rehydration solution can be useful against, excuse me, useful again with a volume variable. In the newsletter, I have a published World Health Organization recipe for making your own rehydration solution. But the bottom line is this. There's no straightforward answer to how much you should drink. I could sit here and tell you it's 1.8 liters per day or 2.5 liters per day, as has been recommended in different studies. However, this is not how physiology works in my mind. We are all unique individuals. Every day is different. Every experience is different. We might be sick. It might be cold. It might be hot. You might be sweating a lot, like on my hike. My rule of thumb for hydration when you are not sick with kidney or heart disease is to have clear urine. If your urine is yellow, then drink more water. If you feel thirsty, you are already behind in your intake and you need to drink a cup or two immediately. I think that drinking a glass of water immediately upon awakening in the a.m. makes great logical sense because of the long pause in intake overnight. Eating foods throughout the day, like watermelon, cucumbers, strawberries, cantaloupe, celery, tomatoes, and others, are lovely and a tasty way to add water. Athletes should drink often during games and practice, especially on hot days. At least one 12-ounce rehydration solution with as much free water as possible is warranted on hot days and heavy workouts. 
Breastfeeding and pregnant mothers need to drink adequate volumes to maintain their and their infant's hydration status. I recommend carrying water around with you all day long as a reminder. All right, that's our story on water. And recipe of the week is a black bean burrito. Awesome stuff. Highly encourage you to try it out. Again, Wolf's Mother's Gypsy Caravan is the great song of the week. And free thoughts this week. Nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Dr. Dobzhansky, completely agree. All right, as always, that's it for this week. Hug those kids and have a great day. The information provided in this newsletter audio cast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or health care professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This audio cast and newsletter does not constitute development of a provider-patient relationship.